I was trying to think, what, what is the question? We've talked about integrated care, but what does it bring? And I think what I heard throughout the day is this notion of value. And value is some, mixed, is some function of quality and cost-effectiveness. We know that through the quality, there are better outcomes. They've been objectively demonstrated. Patient experience was also better. And cost-effectiveness was better. So clearly, it makes sense. And we need to embrace this top of the lessons was clinical leadership. We heard that time and time again, and whether that's doctor leadership, nurse leadership, social worker leadership. We heard that leaders set the vision, that sets the culture, that sets the ability to look at what you're doing, to design pet care pathways, and to make sure that happens. And clinical leadership was clearly right there at the top. Multi-specialties, that was another theme that came through. Now, whether this is in Kaiser or whether it was in the UK examples. What we tended to see in, in the UK examples was examples around social care, intermediate care, where we have those partnerships of primary and community and social care people coming together. And clearly those partnerships add tremendous value to long-term conditions, which we do in isolation still in many areas. The other big area is the incentives and the money. There's no doubt that capitation, and Chris and I, when we went to the States recently, found that you know, clearly capitation allows the people in the organisation to focus on what's important for them. They're not driving out widgets all the time. And it's clearly obvious from the US that when you have fee-for-service, you'll produce more of it. So the idea of capitation is absolutely crucial. And I think the idea of incentives. Over the years, I've really come to recognize the power of incentives. Those are not just financial incentives, which can be positive and negative, but also <coughs> the incentives about my working life and my patient's life is better from what we're doing. So I think we mustn't underestimate and we must think about what are the incentives that we can put in place. One thing I wasn't sure about was organisational form, because we've heard a lot about organisational form, and it's really a question, does it matter? When we were in the States, we had a real pushback, it didn't matter, because I could probably actually say to you, all the people who presented today would probably still be presenting because it was something about the nature of the relationships, the culture, what they've developed locally. And then there's a willingness to move to an organisational form. But is organisational form really that important? The, we heard from Serco, which was very interesting, about this framework for commissioning. Having run a few PCTs, we were so anal about specifications. We would specify absolutely everything. And then worse than that, we would then spend hours making sure that everyone did absolutely everything was specified. Rather than giving people space and coming up with a framework and outcomes that we wanted to deliver. So I think that was a, a very, very clear message. And then two other important messages that actually doing it and delivery is everything. So all the organisations you've heard about, all that they've put in place, they all deliver. So Kaiser were clearly delivering on a whole range of indicators. We heard about 
the other organisations, how they were delivering, how length of stay had gone down, how social care, those marvellous response rates in Torbay for equipment. And heading into QIP, execution is absolutely everything. And I suspect under the surface of that, to execute, you've got to have good information services. And I, I bet you every single one of those organisations has invested in information. The US will have probably put a lot more money than we have. We will have probably worked and done workarounds to make it fix, but workarounds that deliver real-time information. So where are we at the moment? Well, we've got consortia up and running in terms of shadow form. I think it's 174. Wave 4, or Pathfinders, coming soon. It may change slightly as we go forward. What's absolutely crystal clear, though, is the genia is out of the bottle in terms of clinically-led commissioning, and that there is no going back on. The other parts of the reforms, the, the one that really we've got most to do on is what Steve was talking about, patient involvement about your own care, because we're just not good at it, and we've got a long history in the world of how it works, but we just don't do it. And Steve put up the examples of cardiac surgery, and there's something like a 2 or 3% risk of cognitive impairment, and your outcomes aren't much greater, and yet we don't talk to people about that. So that, for me, is one of the biggest challenges of the reforms. And then we've got the any willing provider, which everyone has got really, really stressed about. <laughs> one of the issues there, though, is would you be so stressed if it was voluntary sector organisations coming forward? Because we've been a bit silent on them, and there's some really powerful voluntary organisations that I think could come forward to deliver services. So what are the lessons going forward? Right, clinically-led commissioning. Are we investing in the right form of clinical leaders? In consortia, what we don't need is people who've got a Bible of how to commission and got lots of technical issues about and whizzy things about how to commission. What we want people is who provide a vision, they develop a culture. That was very clear from Kaiser. So let's get that bit right. What we need is groups of clinicians to start to focus on pathways to look at the issues that all the organisations have been focusing on. Where can you release value? And one of the best things I did in, in the PCTs I've run was I set up nine joint clinical work streams between primary and secondary care and mental health and community. And that worked really well in terms of actually getting people together and forgetting organisational boundaries. Those pathways can lead to redesigned services, and that can happen very quickly. We've then got the whole notion of the money. Now, clearly, the consortia will have capitated budgets. Is there anything to stop them entering into a relation with the hospital and having incentives with the hospital or other providers around a capitated budget. Really difficult to do, because you've got to get very good relationships to get there, but is there anything stopping you? The other issue is around, there will be tariff reform, but I suspect <coughs> tariff reform is going to be a bit like a snail, and it hasn't reformed that well so far. So my view is that you're going to have to work in the system you've got. Competition law is competition law. It won't go away. And it's a bit like Tupi whenever we talk about Tupi. It's Tupi. It's there. It applies. So how will any willing provider work? Well, a lot of people are very 
very um, concerned that that will kill off integration. But will it? You can start to see for services, say, diabetes, which is a one that's been well trodden, that you can, as a group, come up with what the outline specification for diabetes looks like, and then you can put that out to the market, and the best group of providers with one lead provider would then have a contract that would have to deliver on outcomes. Now, that's a process to go down, and for those who say that's bureaucratic, it's burdensome, if that gives you the best outcomes, is that surely not a good way to go? And if that gets you a rich mix of providers who may be voluntary organisations, and I've seen some absolutely fabulous things in neurology that voluntary organisations could bring, then I think that's the path you need to go down. The issue with all that, though, is it's this carve-out notion. So if you're doing that for one long-term condition, that's probably inefficient if you've got others over here because people don't just have one condition, they have several and there's a crossover. So how do you then start to look at doing that for all elderly care? It's difficult, it's challenging, but I believe you can do it within the rules. And my advice to people is push the boundaries, push the envelope. We've got everything to learn here, and there's some really good examples that I think you can push through in the existing rules. The other point that I'll, I'll make is the need to have a strategic view. The strategic view is around how the commissioners and the providers in an area decide what it is that area is going to look like and how they're going to make that work. And this is particularly an issue around acute services and beds and managing that. Because hospitals have fixed assets which are highly expensive and you can't just pull something out and drop it in the community. Because they will squeal and they will generate more widgets and we'll all be in trouble. You have to get to the maturity of that debate, which is really, really difficult to do, but it's not impossible. And the maturity of that debate then allows you as a group to decide that way forward. My final point is primary care. Primary care has been sort of left out of these reforms. GMS contract largely carrying on as it is. And it's a rhetorical question. Do we need to look at the GMS contract in different ways of primary care? When I was a lad, primary care was very much as it is now. Group practices working very independently. Now they're going to come together. But your typical GP, you know, will sit there, you'll see acute patients, you'll do your visits, you'll come back, you'll see more patients. The King's Fund put a report out last week on the quality of primary care, which is really essential reading. And I think we need to think we have left primary care out of these reforms. So what is it we need to do to bring them in to add the value? Those are my observations. And none of this is easy, but if we push, we can make those changes. Thank you. Thanks, Paul.